Hello and welcome everybody to the Book of Jude. So glad you are with us. We are going to review. I'm excited. Uh, there are plenty of problem passages that we need to work through. I hope that this little mini-series is helping you work through some of these problem passages and kind of think about it in different ways. Um, what is new? Well, we talked about WordPress last week. If you don't know what that's about, go ahead and make sure you're caught up. Uh, WordPress, um, the link is in the bio, as they say. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, the link is in the bio, all access. Um, we're still working out some bugs. I don't think you can see the latest episode on there, but um, you can definitely hit uh, all of the platforms that are available to you. It's a one-stop shop. So after we spend time in review, we are going to specifically look at Genesis 16, most of it, when it talks about Sarai and Hagar and Abram and Ishmael. Just so you are aware going into it, I'm using my ESV study Bible and I'm using the NIV application commentary, John H. Walton on Genesis. So most of what I say is coming from the notes in those two areas. So um, as you're studying, as you're, I'm hoping you have an open Bible as you're listening to this and you're taking notes, just know that most of the information is coming from that. Uh, the other parts of the, the other things I say are either coming from my head, uh, my memory of being taught along the way. So um, you are allowed to disagree with me. Uh, in fact, I encourage it. You are allowed to questions, uh, question me or question, you know, write down questions you have, submit them to me or uh, seek them out for yourself. Please, please never, ever, ever take uh, my word for it or uh, anyone else's for that matter. So uh, please be a Baran and seek the answers out for yourself. Do some hardcore studying. Uh, that's that's ultimately what I hope I help you to do is, is not just read something and not just listen to me or anyone else. Do some, do some study and spend some hours in your Bible. It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. And so um, please, please do so. Last time we talked about the covenant. Uh, I want to spend a little time making sure we understand what Abram's religion was at this point. Because... Um, we, if we do not count him as righteous, as the scripture says, if we do not see that as justification by faith alone, and you know his, his he was saved, his salvation, right? And we explained all of that last time. So, what was his religion? Um, number one, religion is open and inclusive to Abram at this point. There is no need to choose between gods because all characters relate to the same God. Number two, there is no antagonism between the God and religious practice of the patriarchs as over against the gods and religious practices of the Canaanites. In fact, one would not know there are any other gods. Number three, religious practice of the patriarchs is no noticeably distinct from Mosaic practice. Pillars and worship in many places versus the Sabbath, the food laws, and the sacrificial system. There's, there's a big difference there. 
Number four, there is an absence of uh, an institution, uh, mediation, there's no prophets, there's no priests, aside from the occasional roles played by the patriarchs themselves. Uh, number five, no stipulations of moral obedience serve as the conditions of blessing. And number six, and finally, there is no language suggesting holiness standards needing to be maintained. Several of these are immediately explainable by the absence of a sanctuary, but still it is clear that there are, was no attempt on the part of author and editors of Genesis to bring patriarchal religious practice into conformity in these terms. In general, patriarchal religious practice can be identified as informal, having no cultic place or personnel, and no prescribed sacrifices, procedures, or festivals. But to what extent does patriarchal religious practice conform to that which is found in the Mesopotamian context from which Abraham originates? The biblical text is clear on the point that Abram comes from a family that is not monotheistic. We must assume that he was brought up sharing the polytheistic beliefs of the ancient world. In this type of system, the gods are connected to the forces of nature and show themselves through natural phenomena. These gods do not reveal their natures or give any idea of what will bring their favor or wrath. They are simply worshipped by being flattered, humored, and appeased. Manipulation is the operative term. They are gods with needs. They are gods with needs made in the image of human beings. So one of the main reasons that God makes a covenant with Abram is in order to reveal what he is really like, to correct the false view of deity that people have developed. Just remember, it takes place in stages, not all at once. The Lord, Yahweh, is not portrayed as a God whom Abraham already worshipped. By making a break from his land, Abram, his family, and his inheritance, he is also breaking all of the religious ties since deities are associated with geographical, political, and ethnic divisions. In his new land, Abram does not have any territorial gods. As a new people, he does not bring any family gods, uh, though Rachel attempts to when she leaves, and we can see a good example of that in their story, uh, Abram does not bring any family gods. Having left his country, he does not have any additional or have any uh, national or city gods. He leaves all of that behind. So it is Yahweh who fills this void, becoming the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the problem we come to have in our hearts is, is that Abraham was saved and he, he went to heaven when he died. And so um, if we truly believe our theological affirmation that Christ is the only way to the Father, we are fully justified in insisting that no one before Christ could have gone to heaven. And I know what you're thinking. There are those in the Old Testament that were approved by God. So with regards to salvation, its intentions is not to uh, tell us who was saved, who was not saved, and what the basis of their salvation was. We must again remind ourselves 
how much trouble we can get into if we try to force the text to answer our questions rather than following its own agenda. We cannot impose on the text. It is, therefore, of little interest to them to think in terms of being saved from sin so as to enjoy eternal life with God. There was nothing they were aware of to be saved to, despite their awareness of their own sinfulness. God had not yet revealed the mechanism of deliverance. So, what hope could they formulate? Their hope, whether for themselves in the present or for their descendants in the future, was earthly oriented. Therefore, we know that sin reigned through the law. This was not a fault in the law. The role of the law is for revelation, not salvation. It is misleading to think of God as providing justification for Abram of the same quality as that provided to us through Christ's death and resurrection. It is too simplistic to say that Abram was saved by faith in the same way we are saved by faith, or that he was saved by anticipating in faith the work of Christ on his behalf. The text does not offer us this information. Nevertheless, we have no reason to doubt that we will see Abraham in heaven. We only have to confess that the text does not give us sufficient information to satisfy our curiosity on all points. If it is not difficult to determine what Genesis 15:6 says, it is quite another matter when it comes to deciding what it means. This is partly because the term faith, reckon, and righteousness have a range of meanings in the Old Testament, and there has not always been agreement as to their precise meaning in Genesis 15:6. The problem is compounded by the fact that these terms resonate not only with the Old Testament, but also within the two religions, Judaism and Christianity, which relate themselves to the Old Testament as Scripture, with the result that Commentators have a certain tendency to attribute to the words of Genesis 15:6 that meaning which is congenial to their own theological understanding. Thus, on the one hand, Protestant Christians, whose views have formed the modern scholarly consensus, tend to find a meaning that is consonant with Paul's interpretation in Galatians 3 and Romans 4. However, if you read this verse as a Jewish person, you tend to think of the quote-unquote merit of the fathers. And this belief, among other things, includes the notion that many blessings have come to Israel because of their ancestors' obedience to God. We are now in Genesis chapter 16, Sarai and Hagar. Verse 1, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to his, the voice of Sarai, so after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram 
her husband as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when he saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Verse 6, But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Verse 7, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. Verse 10. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against his kinsmen. Verse 13, So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. I believe that the Bible is God's written revelation to humans. The Word of God is verbally inspired in every word, inerrant in the original documents, infallible and God-breathed. The Bible constitutes the only infallible rule of faith and practice. God spoke in His written Word by a process of dual authorship. The Holy Spirit so superintended the human authors that through their individual personalities and different styles of writing, they composed and recorded God's words to man, without error, in the whole or in the part. I believe there is but one living and true God, an infinite, all-knowing spirit, perfect in all of his attributes, one in essence, eternally existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each equally deserving worship and obedience. All right, so verse 3 says, Sarah gave her, Hagar, to her husband. So after 10 childish years, Sarah, Sarai resorted to the custom of the day by which a barren wife could get a child through one of her own maidservants. She says, I will obtain children through her. Abram, ignoring divine reaction and assurance in response to his earlier attempt to appoint an heir, remember Eleazar, uh, he sinfully yielded to Sarai's insistence, and Ishmael was then born. You know, thinking, be, trying to put ourselves in Sarai's shoes, uh, I want to draw your attention to Psalm 113, and you can read 7 to 9, but I want to highlight the very last part. It says, He settles the barren woman in her home, 
as a happy mother of children. Uh, the inability to bear children was seen as a punishment of, from God. The, the Lord had kept her from having children. And, and so this, is, this would cause a woman social difficulties. It would consider her to be accursed. Uh, would cause her even she could be uh, divorced for this, for not being able to have children. And so her husband and her in-laws would look down upon her. She would even be suspicious of indecent behavior. So the gods surely had to have their reasons for withholding children from a woman. So Sarai's fear doubled her sensitivity because Hagar's spite and feeling of uh, superiority when she was pregnant with Ishmael. So that came from her confidence that a deity of some type had blessed her and uh, that Abram was now dependent on her since she carried the heir to the family in her womb. No wonder she considered herself to have attained privilege status. Sarai's accusation against Abram is that apparently in his delight at becoming a father, he had neglected the, nece uh, the necessary steps that would keep Hagar remembering her appropriate place within the household. Verse 5, Sarai says to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I have my maid into your arms. I gave my maid into your arms. But when she saw that she was that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. So Sarai, not anticipating uh, disregard by Hagar as the result of her solution for barrenness, blamed Abram for her trouble and demanded judgment to uh, rectify the broken mistress-slash-servant relationship. Abram transferred his responsibility to Sarai giving her freedom to react as she wished. In verse 6, he says, Your maid is in your power. Sarai treated her so badly that Hagar left. Now, obviously, we don't know how long Hagar has been traveling as she is fleeing back to her, her homeland in Egypt, uh, but it says that she is on the road to shore. Uh, S-H-U-R, not in shore already. So she was on her way. And now we come to Genesis 16, 7, the angel of the Lord. Number one, angel simply means messenger in Hebrew. And quite frankly, there can be human or supernatural messengers. And of course, we see the supernatural angel a lot. And then we have the angel of the Lord, messenger of the Lord, but is this Yahweh or not? And so uh, we always have to look at the context. The, the special individual spoke as though he were distinct from Yahweh, yet also spoke in the first person as though he were indeed to be identified as Yahweh himself. Um, a lot of Jewish history, if you... If you read about it, you will find out about the two Yahweh figures. We don't have time to go into that, but this is kind of one of those, um, not kind of, this is one of those uh, special moments where we see uh, a distinction from Yahweh, but also speaking in the first person as if in identifying himself with Yahweh. So Hagar recognized that uh, 
seeing this angel, this angel of the Lord, uh, that she had seen God. So others that had the same experience came to the same conclusion. And there are multiple times in the Old Testament where this happens. The angel of the Lord, who does not appear after the birth of Christ, is also identified as the pre-incarnate Christ. Then the Lord said, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. So rebellion is not the solution, and you must return to this uh, mistress-servant relationship. And just to give you an idea of how important having babies were, I'm going to read a portion from Hammurabi's Law. If a man marries a priestess and she gives a slave woman to her husband and she, the slave, then bears children, after which that slave woman aspires to equal status with her mistress. Because she bore uh, children, her mistress will not sell her. She shall place upon her the slave hairlock, and she shall reckon her with the slave woman. The message of the angel shows distinct covenantal overtones in making reference to a numerous seed. The name is given as a reminder of God's response to her suffering at the hands of Sarai. A more common circumstance for giving such a name would have been as the response of a barren woman. When it comes to the angel of the Lord blessing Hagar and her descendants, he says, I will greatly multiply. So, Hagar, a servant she might have been, but mother of many she would also become, thus making Abram the father of two groups of innumerable descendants. I call his name Ishmael. With her son's name meaning God hears, Hagar, the servant, could not ever forget how God had heard her cry of affliction. And now we get to verse 12, where there are many interpretations of this one little verse, a wild donkey of a man. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live to the east of all of his brothers. My study Bible says the untamable desert donkey best described the fiercely aggressive and independent nature Ishmael would exhibit along with his Arabic descendants. Even in the, the main commentary I have by John Walton, verse 12 is not a positive. Um, he even speaks of Moses, undoubtedly found very accurate to describe Ishmael's descendants this way. In Job 39, starting with verse 5, God is asking some questions to Job. Who sent out the wild donkey free? And who loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I gave the wilderness for a home and the salt land for his dwelling place? And it goes on from there. The wild ass of the Arabian deserts is a very noble creature. Ah, see, now we have another viewpoint. This is one of the animals selected in the book of Job as especially exemplifying the greatness of God. Its characteristics are great speed, love of solitude. They delight and love to roam out in, over the desert and despise the ease and luxury of a settled life. 
but he says his hand will be against every man. Well, listen, he can't be bound by no treaties. He submits to no law and counts and, and count plunder as legitimate gain. Nevertheless, he what does it also say? He shall dwell in the presence of all of his brethren. That is, he shall maintain his independence, and his descendants shall continue to exist as a free race in the presence of other Abrahamic nations. Another commentary says this means uh, he will be rude and bold, fearing no man, untamed, living at large, and impatient of service and restraints. His hand will be against every man, that is his sin, and every man's hand be against him, that is his punishment. Matthew Henry's commentary says Hagar was out of her place and out of the way of her duty and going further astray when the angel found her. It is a great mercy to be stopped in the sinful in a sinful way, either by conscience or by providence. He describes Ishmael as the wild donkey, and it's the symbol of wild and free, untamable. Um, so we we see this over and over. We see the consistency, but we also see some differences. Now let's go on with the story. Verse 13, you are a God who sees. Recognizing the angel as God. Did you catch that? Recognizing the angel as God and ascribing this new name to him arose from Hagar's astonishment at having been the object of God's gracious attention. The theophany and revelation led her to call him also the living one who sees me. So Hagar affirms a supernatural identity for the messenger and may well believe the messenger was indeed a deity. But we would expect little in the terms of spiritual insight or discerning subtleties from an Egyptian slave girl. The fact that she believes that she has saw a deity doesn't mean that she did in fact see one. But all arrows point to Yahweh presenting himself to Hagar, uh, blessing her as he did um, for Abram's and Sarai's descendants. He is blessing Abram's and Hagar's descendants in the same fashion. He's also naming, just like we'll see Isaac being named, we see Ishmael being named. And so most likely Hagar is expressing surprise that she has encountered in such an unlikely place a deity inclined to show favor to her. So the narrator identifies the deity as the Lord, Yahweh, but gives no indication that Hagar knows the deity is Yahweh. It's very, that's very good because remember, she's an Egyptian slave girl. So we see Hagar mentioning uh, in verse 13 that she's speaking to Yahweh and she says, you are a God who sees me. She is saying, she's not saying Yahweh, but she's saying El, God. She believes she is in the presence of deity. She may not know who this deity is. She may know who this deity is. She is Abram and Sarah's uh, slave girl. She may know, or she may at least have heard of Yahweh. Uh, but this is the only example in the Old Testament of someone assigning a name to deity. Usually, naming someone or something is a way of affirming authority over the, the one name. So, here, it is more likely that since she does not know the name of the deity who has shown her favor, she assigns a name to him as the identification of his nature so that she may invoke that name in the future. 
Well, I think that's where we're going to end today. Um, we're going to spend maybe, I don't know how many more episodes in Genesis. I, I think, I believe we're going to stop. I'm planning on stopping Genesis 19, I want to say. Uh, don't hold me to it, but as far as the problem passages, I want to stop there. Uh, but we'll see. Who knows what, what's to come. But I think we're going to end there today. Thank you so much uh, for listening to the book of Jude wherever you listen, however you listen. So with that, God bless. And as you go out, make disciples. Man was directly created by God in his image and his likeness. Man was created free of sin with a rational nature, intelligence, volition, self-determination, and moral responsibility to God. God's intention in the creation of man was that man should glorify God, enjoy God's fellowship, live his life in the will of God, and by this accomplish God's purpose for man in the world. In Adam's sin of disobedience to the revealed will and word of God, man lost his innocence incurred the the penalty of spiritual and physical death, became subject to the wrath of God, and became inherently corrupt and utterly incapable of choosing or doing that which is acceptable to God apart from divine grace. With no powers to recover himself, man is hopelessly lost. Man's salvation is thereby holy of God's grace through the redemptive work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because all men were in Adam, a nature corrupted by Adam's sin has been transmitted to all men of all ages. Jesus Christ, our Savior, is the only exception. All men are thus sinners by nature, by choice, and by divine declaration. Salvation is wholly of God by grace on the basis of the redemption of Jesus Christ, the merit of his shed blood, and not on the basis of human merit or works.